it's not just understanding your customer more and building a relationship with them more. It's being that trusted advisor in a digital venue, in a digital space. So how can you be the Amazon seller with all the stars and reviews without selling something on Amazon? Well, it's by putting content out on LinkedIn. It's about having a business Instagram where you're posting pictures of of what you do on a day-to-day basis. It's about how to be a thought leader. And I know this thought leader thing is like the biggest buzzword ever, but how can you communicate to the world that you know what the hell you're talking about? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Data Binge Podcast. This is big episode 15. Super excited about that. And today I've been looking forward to diving in and talking specifically about some observations I've been making around a topic that I'm keenly interested in, a topic we don't really talk about too much on this podcast, and that is sales. Now, what visuals pop into your mind when the word sales is said in a sentence? I'm sure it's all kinds of things. I'm sure it's a dealership. I'm sure it's anxiety. I'm sure it's getting off the phone. I'm sure it's not answering emails. I'm sure it's all these different things. For me, it hurts to hear and it hurts to say. Uh, And I'm in a sales organization. Um, And that's an interesting thing. And that's what we're going to dive a little deeply into today. If you haven't already, please rate the show on iTunes and leave some feedback about what you thought. That would help me tremendously as I'm looking to build out the show. I really want to focus on, at a more granular level, what selling really means to people in the digital era, because it's quite different than it was um, in different eras um, before. And this is a big topic, so I'll cover the most important areas that I possibly can. And, And a lot of the things that I'll be talking about today come from a tremendous amount of conversations with practitioners, with friends, uh, colleagues, leadership folks, mentors uh, in fields ranging from healthcare and tech all the way to education. So there's a ton of knowledge, I think, I'm going to try to scrape through very quickly to share with all of you. And a lot of these thoughts were developed out of a publication I had made on LinkedIn, a, a blog publication. And the publication was called The Outcome Seller. Five Strategic Perspectives on Selling in the Digital Era. So going back to these these bad connotations of sales, uh, I think we all, all of us that have been in sales environments understand, you know, living and dying by your number. You're only as good as your last month. Yada, yada, yada. There's all these different kinds of ways of putting these different things. And another visual that comes to mind for me is just Alec Baldwin, always be closing. You know, the F-bomb, uh, the F-bomb about putting that coffee down, unless you're a closer, then you could drink coffee. So a lot of different things about this era uh, of digital and innovation and how it starts to coincide with sales uh, is super interesting. Now, the new age of sales, and I think what sales has always been, is this, this growth engine of a business. Um, we all know that In order to grow your business, you have to grow your sales. You have to have people in the field um, talking about your products and your services because they are the front line that is growing your your revenues. And 
just because you have a quota doesn't mean that what you do has to be and has to give you all the the visuals that we feel when we say sales. I mean, you think about the different kinds of quotas that other folks have, like folks in quality control. They have to have a certain amount of inspections go through. They have to have a certain amount of uh, failures. They have to have a certain amount of customer returns, different KPIs around that. Um, I have a friend who's a PhD. He's a a doctor in uh, physical therapy. And he has to see a specific number of patients per day. Um, or in HR. HR people have to have a certain amount of human capital additions per day. Supply chain. You think about supply chain, people have to meet certain variances and have certain standards of deviation of different product quality and things like that, inputs and outputs. So there's all these different quotas that people have. It's not just salespeople that have these quotas. Everybody at some point is selling something and having to meet some kind of level of performance or optimization and I think there's a lot of different work streams that are similar in these different veins. And I think that's what we're going to be discovering on this talk that we're going to be having today. Anyone who advocates their ideas to impact business outcomes is in a sales function, like it or not. Anyone who advocates their ideas to impact business outcomes is in a sales function, especially in the digital era. So is that you? I would, I would challenge you to ask yourself that. Are you impacting business outcomes? Because at some point, you're advocating ideas. And at some point, the ideas that you're advocating are super important and super important to your career and to your performance and your quota, as it may. So Satya Nadella, he's a CEO of Microsoft. He mentioned one thing that I really, really appreciated in one of the earnings calls, FY19Q1. And he said, every organization today needs tech intensity to compete and grow in an increasingly digital world. Every organization needs to be a fast adopter of best-in-class technology. They'll need to build their own proprietary digital capability. So when you think about businesses that are building these, these digital capabilities and they're becoming fast adopters and they're adopting this this best-in-class technology, there's something that comes to mind there. There's a a need that comes to mind, and it's people who understand innovation. It's people who understand the digital era, and it's people who understand the ability and the need for these customers to, or these organizations to reach out to their customers um, and bridge the gap between what they're trying to increase capacities with and their products and their services and some of the needs that their, their customers are having. And the question I wanted to ask is, how do organizations build effective sales teams that grow and innovate dynamically to help customers realize business outcomes against revenue? So business outcomes against revenues. And I've put together this five different lines of thought, five different big observations, five different focus areas, five different places that we can all pay more attention to in our daily grind, our daily hustle, our daily strategy, our daily business outcomes that we're trying to fill, that we're trying to match, that we're trying to excel in. And it starts here. Number one, you truly have to be obsessed and you have to challenge them, your customers. And I'll read this quote from Jeff Bezos. If your whole culture is competitor obsessed, it's hard to stay motivated 
if you are out in front. Whereas customers are also unsatisfied, always discontent, always want more. So no matter how far in front you get in front of competitors, you are still behind your customers. They are always pulling you along. End quote. That was a quote from Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon. And just listening to some of Jeff Bezos' video clips and hearing some of his interviews, you can really tell that this aspect of customer obsession is just so deeply ingrained. And just from that quote, you can tell that it's just, it makes a lot of sense. You can't focus on your competitors. You have to focus on your customers. And there's a ton of ways to do that. And I think a lot of folks are not doing it. I think going into a customer situation and talking about things from your perspective, you being a master of your technology, you being a master of your product and your service, and then going to a customer and thinking that you're providing something new to them or you're being customer obsessed, I think it's just the wrong way to go about it. There's a ton of information out there. There's SEC filings like the 10Ks. How often have you read a 10K, the first couple pages of a 10K before talking to a customer? going on LinkedIn, figuring out how many employees they have, how they make their revenues, what their profit margins look like, what kind of percentage increase in different business functions they've added on from a human capital perspective. There's just a ton of information out there that you can learn about a prospective customer or business. And it's a big barrier to entry for really great conversations that most people don't have. So the customer obsession perspective is huge. And I can't underline that enough. It's worked tremendously for me. It works tremendously for my coworkers. Simply doing the homework, simply coming to the table with something not only provocative from your offering stack, but understanding how the customer could use it is just absolutely critical, super critical. And there's a second piece to this point number one, and it's challenging them. So if you've never heard of the challenger sale, taking control of the customer conversation, was written by Matthew Dixon and Brent Adamson. They have these five different sales profiles, which is a great book. And Microsoft actually uh, uses a lot of the challenger sales trainings to train its, uh, its sales staff. Um, it's just a fantastic book. I read it a couple of years ago. And it takes these five different profiles. And there's the hard worker salesperson. There's the challenger salesperson. There's the relationship builder salesperson, which we all know. There's a lone wolf salesperson profile, which we've probably seen before too. And there's the problem solver. And then out of all of these profiles, the profile that showed the most high performance in terms of sales, customer advising, understanding the gap between the customer needs and the products and services that you're offering is the challenger profile, which 39% of these profiles are considered high performing in a study by Gartner. The second next is uh, the lone wolf. And the uh, third next is the hard worker. So you can, you can kind of see where that comes from now. So what is the challenger sales method? What does it, what does it mean? What does it mean to challenge your customers? Well, this entire premise, the entire sales framework, the entire teaching of this book and this method and, and, and why it matters in this digital economy, digital era, innovation economy, is you're really becoming more of a trusted advisor. You're really becoming more of a consultant. You're not just trying to close your customer. 
you're really trying to help them visualize some of the things that they're trying to accomplish. Um, and Satya Nadella likes to call them unarticulated needs. So you're really trying to figure out the unarticulated needs of your customer and really trying to put together a message that resonates with them while giving them a very valuable offering. And the three biggest takeaways from this book is teaching, tailoring, and taking control. Super easy. Teaching, tailoring, and taking control. The challenger sales method. So number one, teaching. That goes back to customer obsession. Doing the homework, coming in to see your customer, to talk with your customer, and understanding how they do business. At the same time, understanding how their competitors are doing business. What's going on in the industry? Are there any pieces of information that you can share? Any industry trends? What has been working across the rest of the Microsoft customer portfolio? What hasn't been working? What are your colleagues doing? What's the history behind some of these technologies, some of these products and services that you're trying to have them uh, look at in their value stream? You're really coming in and you're having a perspective. If they get off the phone with you or if they get out of a meeting with you and they can't say that they learned something new, then you didn't teach and they have no reason to pick up your phone call, answer your email, your text message, knock at the door, uninvited, unsolicited, stop by the, uh, the office. None of these things mean anything to them if they haven't learned anything because the digital innovation economy is all about learning. And so the second thing is tailoring. So once you're teaching and you're landing the fact that you have this credibility in the industry and you have something to share and what you have to share is very worthwhile, the second thing that you want to do is tailor your message to them. So presenting this information, you understand them as a customer, you understand their industry, you understand their challenges. But now you're starting to tailor all of these different things into solutions that make sense for them. So, you know, for instance, if I were to go talk to a semiconductor business that machines and manufactures wafers and silicon and semiconductors on a global scale, I'm going to want to come in and I'm going to want to teach them some things that are going on in the industry. Maybe I can talk about IoT and digital twin. Maybe I can talk about predictive yield management or predictive QAQC. Let me help you figure out how you can get through first article inspection faster or completely taking it out altogether by using machine learning and understanding why your products are failing at the fifth or sixth revision level of inspection. That's just a quick example. We're seeing a lot of technology trends there. For you, since you specifically make these items in Singapore, you're going to want to have a global visibility into how your data is performing or how your products are performing around the different data capturing and analytics methods. Or is that all coming out of your headquarters today? How are you looking at some of those data streams? Where is the data located? Is there any lag time? Do you have access to that data all the time? You're just focusing the conversation specifically to their use cases based upon the things that you're teaching them. That's just an example. And then finally, you're taking control. You're really trying to figure out how your solutions, you went from teaching them about solutions that are working, things that are happening in the industry, to solutions that could be good for them 
based upon their specific use cases to solutions that you can offer, meet them in the middle and really bridge that gap from their needs to what you can offer. And it's super tailored. You have the credibility and now you're coming to them with a recommendation that they could viably use. Because that's the challenger sales method. I really like the method. It really works. Hey, customer, if what I've just told you makes a lot of sense, um, it seems like these are your problems. This is what's going on in the industry. This is what we can do for you. It's been working really well. You should try it out. These are the reasons why it would work for your specific use case based upon what we're seeing in the rest of the industry. It's a, it's a beautiful conversation piece. Number two, establishing credibility, authority, and trust with strengths and specialization. So what do you think about when you think about sales and you think about credibility, authority, and trust? Those are all things that you really have to have when you buy something. You have to understand that the product is going to work. You have to understand why you're buying it and have an opinion and a perspective on why you're buying it. And you have to really believe in and trust the person and have that trust from the person that you're buying from. And that goes for anything. That goes for just buying something or that goes for also being a trusted advisor and advising something, advising anything, whether it be going to your doctor, your dentist, or your mechanic. You really have to have credibility, authority, and trust um, with strengths and specialization. And Peter Drucker he wrote this book called The Effective Executive. And if you don't think that you're an executive, an executive defi as defined by him in the book is anyone who makes any meaningful impact in decision-making uh, against a company's bottom line. And if you are working at all in any capacity at a business, you're probably considered to be in that, in that work stream. He says to focus on your strengths because an organization's success is rooted in the power of the individuals and their unique strengths. Super important. The success is rooted in the power of the individual and their unique strengths. And after reading this book, I really took away a ton of things from that. Like there's, there's a way of working on your, on your weaknesses. And we've all done that before. I've spent hours and hours and hours trying to understand how to, how to pivot certain things in Excel when I could be crafting really, really great messaging in PowerPoint or really, really great messaging for a meeting coming up presentation that I'm going to give, a talk track that I'm going to give, building a tool within my own ecosystem that makes sense for, for customers and colleagues. Focusing on your weaknesses is not going to add value to your organization's success because there's nothing unique about you trying to be like everyone else. A study by Gallup on enabling strengths management practices in the workplace, and I'll put these links again in the show notes, about 50,000 business units were surveyed, 1.2 million employees across 22 organizations in seven industries in 45 countries revealed the following data. 90% of the work groups that implemented a strengths intervention of any magnitude saw performance increases at or above the ranges following here. About 10 to 20% in sales performance increases people again, focusing on strengths, 15 to 30% profit increase, 22 to 60% decrease in safety incidents. And there's more percentages and stats on decreased turnover, et cetera. The moral of the story is focusing on strengths is super key. 
And then there's this aspect of while you're focusing on your strengths, you're also specializing just inherently by doing that. It's very hard to focus on strengths and be good at everything or focus at, on strengths and, and know everything. And after talking to Arlena Barquez, who's a digital advisor for Microsoft Digital, um, I've worked with her several times. Um, she also came on the podcast, episode number nine. She had a very interesting perspective on how women specifically and just generally how people of diverse backgrounds can excel and compete. And it was all about knowing your stuff. So her guidance was, and she has you know, 30 plus years of experience, a computer science background, has been in a, a male-dominated industry for her entire career, really just has a lot of reps in these different workflows. But she said, become a subject matter expert because people cannot refute the power of knowledge and expertise. That was so powerful to me. And then she said, by knowing your stuff, you build credibility in your craft and you grant yourself authority and permission to consult in your area, you earn trust from the market, your customers, and your colleagues. So think about that. It, focusing on your strengths, focusing on your strengths helps you specialize. It helps become a subject matter expert. And especially for underrepresented groups, especially for people who have a smaller voice at the table, especially for people who want to exceed expectations, it's above critical to know your stuff. So I thought that was a really great piece that she shared with us. That's point number two. Point number three, be a consumption economist. So I read this book and I was interviewing at Microsoft at the time. I was super nervous and just wanted this job so bad. I wanted this career change so bad. I wanted it for myself and my family. I just, the amount of pressure on my shoulders while I was in business school and I was interviewing for these different positions at these different tech companies. I had a really good coach, if you will, someone who actually worked at Microsoft, who was a couple of years my senior from the MBA program I, was, I graduated from. And he told me to pick up this book, Consumption Economics, The New Rules of Tech. And it just absolutely blew my mind that we're not all talking about this on the daily basis. And the, the premise of the book is it covered the fact that customers are having higher expectations for products and services. And we've, we've all seen this. We want everything now, instantaneous. I'm sure Amazon helped out with this a little bit. Um, there's more competition, especially because of the immersion of, of digital and the internet. There's seemingly unlimited competition on a global scale. There's an increasing of options. So there's just so many different things that you can, you can do, so many different features, things that you can turn on, um, people you can go and buy from, organizations you can go and buy from because of this increased competition. And there's less barriers to entrance and egress. So it's easier now to get out of a contract. If there's even a contract at all, you simply cancel your credit card subscription. You simply move to a different cloud space. You simply... Go the different vendor. The world of OpEx has emerged. It's very successful. It's, it's very relevant. And the world of CapEx is legacy. And we're finding that, especially at an enterprise level, people are wanting to do that a lot less. So this whole book comes down to this one singular point. It's a, it's a beautiful book. And it covers these things so gracefully. And it talks about this CapEx model. 
and how in that model, let's say we're talking 90s, the model would eventually have to come to a flattening. There would always be an inflection point of complexity and utilization. And I'm talking from a, a software perspective. An inflection point of complexity and utilization. Because let's say you're a tech company and you sell an organization some software. They buy the, the software and it's a, you know, it's a $10 million purchase and they're gonna, it's going to change the business's strategies. It's going to increase revenue. Here's the ROI metrics, yada, yada, yada. It's a massive pot of gold for the sales team or the tech business that just sold the solution. Everyone's high-fiving. The customer's happy. Tech company's happy. Basic features would be used quickly. But here's the discrepancy. The longer the product was in the market, the more competitors started to come out. So if you sold a big CRM project, which I've never, I've never sold CRM, but let's say you sold CRM and it had been out in the market for three to four years, a manufacturing CRM or a retail space CRM. Well, now there's all these, these different competitors that are emerging which is causing you to drop your prices as a CRM license holder or engineering company that's making these different software packages that you're licensing out on a CapEx model. Well, you're going to have to drop prices because these startups are coming and they're starting to disrupt your space and they're, trying to, they're starting to come in with different solutions and there's just more options available. Well, now the support and the engineering needs to help the customer develop on this big $10 million CRM purchase would start to disappear. The initial advanced footprint would start to disappear. So new versions would have to be released to increase profit margins again. And you see where this leads. So in three years or four years, a new version comes out from the same tech company and that's $10 million. And they have the customer would have to buy that. And the same thing would happen time and time and time again. So it's all this lost potential for the buying organization because they want to use the advanced features. They really want to, but they're not getting the implementation support from the engineering tech company that's selling it to them because there simply is too much of a saturation in the market and they don't have the money or the means to help the buying company develop out and enable and turn on these advanced features. So it's just a massive margin wall is what the book calls it. And the new OPEX model consumption economics. Everything is based on consumption. You turn things off. You can literally turn off or scale back services at any time. Customers can utilize their investments far more because they're not getting anything out of it. They just turn it off. Um, What happens in a month-to-month agreement like that, a subscription agreement, an OPEX agreement, the customer has to consume they have to transact. They, their end customers, their microtransactors have to consume the technology or they're just going to turn it off because it's not making a business impact. The technology companies know that. So they put support and engineering and enablement and an organization, it could be called customer success, that stands behind all of, the, all of those different technologies and all those different customers that are consuming and they protect their investments. They protect the value metrics and the ROI of the customer. And now, instead of having this far, this big gap in the relationship, there's this super close relationship. And the models have changed. For the tech company, it's good. Because they can support, they can offer, and they can sell at every single level. 
um, at every single microtransaction level. So let's talk about you know Microsoft Office 365, for instance. It's a monthly subscription. It's in the cloud. It's never going to go away as long as you're paying your monthly subscription. And you can just turn on features anytime that you want. My Analytics, uh, just <laughs> Power BI, different, different analytics modules. There's all these different things that you can start turning on in that ecosystem because it's subscription-based. And the tech company is continuing to put money into support and features and enablement. And you as a customer are continuously investing in it because there are advanced features. You've already gotten through the basics and now you can start turning these different things on. So understanding this relationship, and it's kind of a complicated model, but it makes a lot of sense once you start really dumbing it down. You have to have people in the sales organization and the trusted advisor organization understanding who are transacting, understanding these micro users, understanding the UI that they need to see, understanding how they do business, what their journey mapping looks like. So there's a lot of design thinking that has to go into, from a customer perspective, what they're doing. And empathy is the big word behind this. You have to have empathy. You have to know the people that are using the technology so you can help them continue to microtransact so that the organization continues to consume the product or service. So be a consumption economist. Understand that to be a trusted advisor, you have to understand the economics of how software or anything is being consumed in the digital era. All right, number four, find your passion and that of others. So this is a little bit of a, of a subjective piece here, but I put this in because it's an observation that I really, really believe in. How often are you doing things at a high performance level that you just hate doing, that you just don't care about? Um, for me, it's not often. If I don't like doing something, I'm just not going to do a good job at it. So you have to find a way to care about the products, services, offerings, customers, colleagues, organization, management, everything in your world or in, a, in, the, in the world of a salesperson, i.e. trusted advisors world in the digital era has to be centered around ethos of love and care and passion and energy for what you're doing. And I really got this framework from a senior lecturer at the University of Texas in Austin, um, McComb School of Business while I was getting my MBA. Um, he was one of my professors. His name is John Doggett, Professor John Doggett. So uh, pretty, pretty intense uh, professor, uh, but one of the best I've ever had. And I, I went into his office one day and I just, I, I had a really hard time figuring out what I wanted to do in my career. And, you know, I had colleagues that were going into consulting and product management and they're going into strategy and they're all these super interesting careers. I just didn't give a damn about any of that. It just, it didn't get me out of bed. I wasn't passionate about it. This, this at the time was before I, I knew about the, the different kinds of positions in the sales organizations and, at IBM and Dropbox and Google and, and Microsoft and cloud computing and all those different things. Um, I just couldn't find a talk track that I really liked that resonated with me. And he came to me and he said, look, 
you really have to love what you're doing. You have to do what you are best at doing. And you have to do what you will be the most successful doing or making the most money doing. And in the center of that Venn diagram is the job that you need to go after. And it's the same exact thing for outcome selling in the digital economy. It's the same exact thing. So the, think about the products and the services and the offerings, all these different things, your ecosystem, your ethos. All, think about all of that. And really think about those three things, what you love doing, what you are best at doing, and what you'll be the most successful doing. And are you at the middle of that intersection? Because if you're not, you're just going to have a really, really hard time. And your employees are going to have a really, really hard time. And everybody in your ecosystem is going to have a really hard time being a trusted advisor uh, and selling in this, in, this, in this era. You can make an immense impact if you just line these things up. And I, I totally get it. There's things I do on a daily basis that I just loathe doing. I just can't stand doing. SQL Server databases and database technology in general, I just, it's probably, for me, it's one of the things that I just like talking about the least of all the cool things that I talk about on a day-to-day basis with customers and colleagues. But there is someone in your ecosystem, in your network that loves talking about that product or service or whatever, or that topic. And if you can trace back and connect that to someone else's center, both of you can be extremely impactful and that's how you can scale and that's how you can have conversations completely out of your realm of passion and love and caring and all these different things to make a huge impact with a customer or an, or an organization because you're machining away and automating away for you to put your best self forward. So I, I think this topic I'm just really passionate about. I'm always having my best face forward, my best foot forward. Um, when I'm talking to customers, because that's what I love doing. And if I can't have that conversation, I don't love doing that, then I go find someone else that loves doing that. And that's what teamwork really means in that outcome selling environment. And I think that is absolutely critical. And it's really hard to do. But once you can network, you can find people that love to have the conversations that you don't like having about the products that you may not love as much then you have something going for you. And if you can't find any of these things, well, I think it's time to start looking for a role with an organization that has some things that you can kind of attach yourself to um, that you can, you can really believe in. So that's finding your passion and that of others. Okay, lastly, number five, branding is everything. Your digital IP. So think about when the last time you made it purchased on Amazon was. I mean, you know how it goes. You go to amazon.com, you go to the search bar, you put whatever crazy item or whatever thing that you wanted to research and spend 30 minutes looking into is, you put that in there, you look through the, the search results, you find the image that looks kind of like what you want, you, you quickly look over to the right, and then what's the first thing you do? You look at the amount of stars that the product was given, and then after the stars, you look at the amount of people that left reviews. 
And then after that, maybe you might go and look at the price or some combination of that. So you're, you're reading the reviews of sellers and those reviews mean something to you. Those sellers mean something to you where, you know, traditionally, if you were to go to Costco or some other kind of, you know, retail space and to buy something, you really didn't know what people thought unless you went on Reddit or all these different things. And you had to figure that out on your own or ask friends or go and search out a maven and ask these mavens or watch YouTube videos, this long process. But this digital review process, this, this ability for this seller to have this brand, this online brand, and then you're, you're, not only are you buying these things from these specific sellers, you're realizing some of these sellers are the same sellers. You're starting to get to know sellers more and you can look back at your purchase history. But this brand is a key differentiator for how you're engaging with some of these purchasing models and the ways that you're buying. And it's the same thing for how to approach customers in anything that you do. And you have to establish a digital brand. And so many phenomenal sellers that I work with on a day-to-day basis, whether it be at the customer level or some of my colleagues just don't have this. And it's just, it's a massive miss. And some of these sellers are, are incredible. And I can't even imagine what kind of impact they'd have on their customer organizations and the value that they're, that they're bringing to the table by just having a better brand and having it be digital. In just a quick uh, survey done by CEO Insights in Seismic, 2016 sales enablement optimization study posted on a, a graphic that eMarketer let out. The title is Primary Benefits of Using Social Selling Tools According to Business to Business Professionals Worldwide. So 39% of the benefits of using social selling tools came from reduced account contact in research time. Um, so that's pretty critical. The second thing was increased number of leads. And then the third thing was deeper relationships with clients, which is about 31%. So deepening relationships, increasing leads, researching your customer, researching organizations you're taking a look at. So all these different ways are how these different sellers are using social selling tools to be more effective. And it's not just one way. It's not just understanding your customer more and building a relationship with them more. It's being that trusted advisor in a digital venue, in a digital space. So how can you be the Amazon seller with all the stars and reviews without selling something on Amazon? Well, it's by putting content out on LinkedIn. It's about having a business Instagram where you're posting pictures of, of what you do on a day-to-day basis. It's about how to be a thought leader. And I know this thought leader thing is like the biggest buzzword ever, but how can you communicate to the world that you know what the hell you're talking about so that they know to come and buy from you? Because once you start building this community, once you start building this back and forth with different people in your industry, it doesn't even have to be with customers. Customers see that, people start trusting you, people start regarding you as the four and a half stars, the 500 reviews, the 600 reviews, because there's a lot of buzzing. There's a lot of things going on around you, a lot of great energy, a lot of digital energy and digital frothiness that people want a piece of because you must know what you're talking about if you're putting out so much content. And in that process, you just learn so much more about yourself, about your business, about the things that you need to know 
um, on a day-to-day basis. And you learn so much more about your customers too. And I've, I've done this myself. I started my journey by following Gary Vaynerchuk at the request of one of my friends. And I read his book, Crushing It. It completely changed the way I do everything. That's how I started this podcast. I post usually one post on Instagram every single day. I try to post one thing on LinkedIn every single day. I do videos. I'm doing digital content on on YouTube. I built a website, all these different things. And it's a lot of work and it's a lot of conversations, a lot of things that are having, a lot of frothiness in, in the digital space that I'm having. But it's starting to pay off because a lot of people are seeing that I'm putting a lot of effort into this and I'm just learning at scale a tremendous amount about what people want to listen to, what people want to read about the different products and services that I represent, how to add value to some of these customer spaces. I follow most of my customers, their organization pages on my different social media outlets. It's, it's a journey and it's a journey that not many people will follow, but it's a journey that needs to be taken if people want to be successful having real business impact, real outcome selling uh, in the digital era. So engineers have patents. You would know that because when you go into an engineer's office, they usually have their patent certificates all over the place. Um, But every single time that you create something digitally, you're creating your own digital IP. And that digital IP is around your thoughts and your perspective. And it's absolutely integral to your success advocating ideas. Um, So those were the five biggest takeaways from all of my learnings and all my observations and all the things that I've come across, all the times that I've listened to people talk about their method, all the times that I've seen my personal methods fail and the methods of others fail, talking to mentors, observing some of the things that are working for my colleagues and friends and you know, reading different social media posts and really just soaking all these different things in. I really think that if you focus on these five different things, you can be a tremendous outcome seller. You can be a tremendous trusted advisor and you can make some tremendous impact at the customer level, at the team level, at the management level, at the employee level, at the family level, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it whatever impact you want to have, you can have it if you just embrace these five different things. So I hope you enjoyed that. I really did. I'm really passionate about these ideas. Please let me know what you think. And I'm hoping to have many more conversations very soon about data, how you can utilize data, how you can leverage the power of AI, cloud computing, and some of these very front edge technologies to really scale massive impact across organizations on a global scale. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.